This is My Montessori Life, the podcast that holds up a unique lens to contemporary social, cultural, and political issues. Maria Montessori aimed to reform humanity by building a better human being from the start, preparing young children for a life of profound self-determination, empathy, and wisdom. Everything to which an advanced civilization should aspire. The podcast's regular hosts are Barbara Isaacs, President-elect of Montessori Europe and one of the world's leading authorities on Montessori, and David Getman, author of the textbook Basic Montessori and founder of the software firm My Montessori Child, which sponsors this podcast. In this third of three podcasts on the theme of feminism, Barbara and David are joined by two guests, Adelaide Waldrup, a young contemporary feminist working in the arts and co-founder of Maud, a feminist theatre company and Sid Mohandas, whose doctoral thesis explores the materialization of gender in learning environments. Adelaide, what does feminism today mean to you and other millennials, and how does your work reflect that? Well, that's a big question. Um, (laughs) To me personally, um, feminism has meant a lot of things as I've grown up, uh, and my relationship to feminism as a concept has has fluctuated a lot. I, as well as many of my millennial peers, was raised by a very feminist mother and feminist father, um, though that wasn't without its own sort of trappings at the times in which they they were raised. So I've found that it's been a sort of growing relationship for me, particularly as I've become, uh, you know, as, as I've started working in the arts and collaborating with other people and, and my understanding of of what it means for me to be a woman and what it means for me to fight for gender equality and gender diversity and and open and inclusive spaces and all of the ways that that means um has been sort of a constant it's it's a it's a continuing learning process that one that I really enjoy um and I think now more than ever it feels like uh our modern understanding of feminism is in a, in a really steep period of change. Um, and that goes hand in hand with, you know, the, the increased, um, fight for racial justice, uh, and also a greater awareness and, um, you know, discourse around gender identity and gender fluidity and sexuality and the politics surrounding that. So for me, my feminism is very intersectional, and I aspire to to make it more so as as I learn and grow and try and better myself as a person and a woman, um, and and I try and make art and and tell stories that that help dismantle those structures, particularly patriarchal structures that have really negatively affected me and and many many more people, much more so. Um, I guess is is part part of an answer. Well, um, in, our, in our last podcast, um, Barbara and I spoke about how, all the different ways in which Maria Montessori was a pioneer of feminism and then was able to realize her goals through the design of an approach to childhood, which created opportunities for personal um, fulfillment and for diversity and for um, a focus on one's individual maturation and development through um, through her Montessori settings and through the Montessori method, which was then adopted by thousands and then perhaps millions of people around the world. And she also um, found that she needed feminism in order to further her own position in life and her career and her education and was constantly struggling in that way. So it sounds like Maria had uh, in many ways a parallel experience to yours. Um, how is it better now than it was in Maria's time? I mean, I can I can jump in with a few things, but <laughs> I'm sure everyone can speak to that a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can empathize in certain ways since I... Uh, partially a director by trade, a theater director. And that was a very, or has been traditionally a very male, uh, male led profession in the artistic world. And, um, and that's something that I've seen even, even in my adolescence through to my adulthood change drastically in my artistic spheres that 
you know, by the time I went to drama school, there were six of us uh, getting masters in directing and five of us were women. So that was that was not what I expected. Um, but I think that was a, that was an intentional move to help train and facilitate more female leaders in in the artistic sphere. Um, there's does somebody want to I can jump into some of the history. There's a lot of a lot of things that have changed. I'm very grateful for. Yeah, it would be interesting just to hear your views on that. Yeah. Well, I think reproductive rights are really uh, come come to the forefront of my mind as as a white American woman. Um, I think one of the ways in which my feminism from a young age was really galvanized um, was the you know intense, intensely vitriolic and quite violent uh, discourse in America around female reproductive issues and, and that aren't uniquely female either. You know, um, people rarely talk about <laughs> the importance of, of um, yeah, it, people often look at that just as a, as a woman's issue, but it is really a larger uh, human issue. And, and living in a country where there were times, depending on political leadership, where it felt like my access as a sort of sexually maturing and now sexually mature woman to birth control would be taken away from me. It was a very scary, it has been a very scary thing to think about and also a very scary thing to witness taking place in my country. Um, and yeah, and I, I know from my own family history, the ways in which that was even more difficult for my grandmother and, you know, the women in my family before her. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's one that always jumps to, to the forefront of my mind. And then you know, you have things like marriage equality and women's rights to property ownership and, oh, suffrage. I mean, all sorts of things that were pretty important. But Right. Great. Um, Barbara, what would you say, how many of um, Maria's feminist goals in her time have we seen progress on? Well, um, not so many, actually. Um, yes, certainly the reproductive rights, had they been in place in her day, she would have kept her son and would have brought him up and might have stayed as a doctor. She may never have become a pedagogue. I always believe that it was the loss of her son that has drawn her to children, um, partly guilt for not being able to bring him, but also wanting other children have to have what she was not able to give um, uh, give to her son. Um, but um, when she gave her first feminine speech, the report in the press was not about very much what she said, but how she was dressed and how gracious she was in her presentation. Um, I still note that when women do something, there is often comment about how they have presented themselves when it's rarely a curse in presentation of men in the public. So some of the things are deeply entrenched in the culture in which we live. Um, but I think that um, what she would be pleased about is the fact that so many more women get educated and get university education. And certainly um, uh, young women of Adelaide's uh, uh, time make decisions about their future more readily um, if they have access to that education. So again, it's predominantly Western girls that I'm referring to. And they value the work that they do. They understand, they give um, something to community and fiercely guard it. So they are then presented with the challenge of what it is to be a mother and what it is to be, um, to have a profession. And that in itself carries a price for the freedom to have your profession because there is a, again, level of guilt and some tension. And But I think that uh, young women are able to cope with those challenges better these days and they have a sense of um, entitlement which Montessori probably which Montessori had to fight for really in her day very fiercely. Yeah. I think it's interesting the the 
seemingly oppositional relationship between motherhood and professional ambition that that I I'm working on on um, negotiating as as a young woman, you know, in my late twenties. Um, there's I I do think that the ways in which we conceive of the stages of a woman's life are very much framed around the mother uh, around motherhood or the absence thereof, mm. uh, and this notion of sacrifice and and yeah trade offs and at what price and that sort of thing. And I. I mean, I'll come back to it later when we talk more about about mm. the show that that my company has been working on. But it is very much about how we conceive of motherhood as as sort of oppositional to other creativity, even. And and I think the two go hand in hand. And I think mm. that's something that that Maria Montessori is a really good example of is how her her position as a mother and her creativity as a pedagogue and an educator how those kind of are interconnected mm -hmm. um and and one reinforced the other in absolutely. a way absolutely yeah i mean i agree i mean um for me personally what really bothers me is how single mothers are quite often framed mm. in public discourse and in policy um quite often um women single mothers are blamed for uh boys underachievement or children's mm -hmm. you know un underachievement which really um yeah it it in some ways conceal some of the more wider uh, systemic injustices related to class and mm -hmm. all those aspects that really shape and inflect how uh, children experience learning. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also I think it, there's a, there's a real um, ageism that comes into play with women's lifespans, especially where once you move out, out of the sort of uh, once your children are, are of an adult age, a lot of women who have invested uh, their identities in in their mother motherhood um, <laughs> then find themselves kind of to no value to society in a way until they become grandmothers or something. And and um, and there's a lot of invisible or or commonly overlooked roles that women fulfill in society that are are often uh, taken for granted and not and not seen for, for all of the strength that they possess and they endow to the rest of the community. Mm -hmm. One of the um, narratives that uh, surface in early childhood is the need for uh, children to have father figures, um, which connects to, you know, seeing women in deficit. And um, you find that this sort of narrative of children needing a father not only, um, you know, criminalizes women, but it mm. also uh, sees non-heteronormative -heter uh, families as in deficit, you know, when there's, uh, you know, quite lo loads of longitudinal research that, that show that there makes, you know, it makes no difference. So I think it's not just women who are affected by it. It's all those marginalized others who are affected by this as well, by the cis white patriarchy. You know, of so. course. You said that your father was feminist. Oh, yeah. So I wonder, is it possible, really, for a cisgender male to be a feminist? Absolutely. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah, my... Uh, feminism is, you know, obviously, etymologically, has has a relationship to women. But what it is, is about, for me, and, and I think for most modern feminists, I would hope it's about dismantling this, the ways in which patriarchy has put everyone at a disadvantage. And, and people don't often talk about how much it has disadvantaged men as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, my father is from the deep South from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and, uh, grew up in a very, very patriarchal society. Uh, one that was also, you know, in the throes of the civil rights movement and, um, you know, a lot of other a lot of other stuff besides. And uh my father was you know, for having a father figure like I did, um, he has shown me uh, he's taught me so much that so many values that I think people traditionally think of as feminine. My father is is, you know, a very strong, present, you know, he's he's masculine in many ways, but he's uh, an attentive listener. He is a 
dutiful carer and incredibly generous. You know, my my parents have taken care of both of my grandmothers and my great aunt, and my father has been a hands-on carer of these women in later stages of their lives in ways that that people don't commonly associate strong Southern men, mm. you know, or, or what, you know, it's so, it's so funny to talk about my dad like that because he's just never been somebody that I saw as um, macho in that way. And, and he's been stronger for it. Mm. Um, and so my father is a feminist because he's, he's always encouraged. He, he raised two very strong, strong minded young women mm -hmm. he married one and he's supported and encouraged them and also in in his daily life in the way that he lives his life he has a morality and and uh, uh, a generosity and a sort of sense of social and civic responsibility to people from all walks of life that I think is the essential quality of what it is to be a good feminist absolutely uh, I was thinking that um, a lot of people think feminism is against masculinity. Uh, yeah. And it really isn't. What, what feminist, feminism is against is feminist, feminist, feminine and uh, masculine uncaring practices. You know? mm -hmm. So uh, care is really what we're uh, asking for. I mean, there's this um, Carol Gilligan who actually talk, talks about an ethic of care mm -hmm. uh, you know, that needs to permeate our practice and our way of being in the world. I think that is what feminism is really about, about caring. Yeah. Creating well, and, caring spaces. And 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 caring for yourself as well. And and I think there is so much about our common conception of strength that often gets uh very detrimentally attached to uh to really stereotypical associations of masculinity like physical strength and uh forms of violence, like how good are you at fighting or hunting or um, intimidation? And ironically, in my experience working in the arts, I have had more negative experiences with women who are wielding those kinds of patriarchal tactics under the, the conception that it's how they gain power. When what I'm really interested in as a feminist working in the arts, but also just living my life is helping, you know, the world that I participate in reframe our idea of what it is to be strong. So, you know, as a director, I, I see this all the time where you think of the strong male director as being really decisive and kind of mysterious and maybe a bit destructive in his practice and his method and, and he's wild and, and takes big risks. And, um, and actually I, and, and I see other female directors aspire towards that kind of mentality. But realistically, what I value as strength is more traditionally feminine. It is uh, open collaboration and discussion. It's flexibility. It's admitting when you don't know something and when you just want to try something. And and owning up to your mistakes and not seeing fallibility as, as contradictory to strength, but rather as an asset to it and how you grow and develop it. Um, and also that your strength doesn't come at the price of other people's weakness or subjugation. Interestingly, Montessori called her teachers directors. Mm. Um, and because they were, as exactly as you say, in your experience of a feminist theater, they were um, facilitating and inspiring the children and helping them to realize their potential rather than controlling and manipulating the children as um, perhaps some theater directors might do. So, um, Barbara, can you um, mention how this is manifested in the Montessori environment, this nurturing of the caring attitude of children? Well, I think we in the Montessori community, we are still learning about all these aspects. I don't believe that we have got a, a ready-made fix that will improve this because it's a personal journey for every person. But I think in order to understand aggression first, you need to have to be allowed to have those feelings. So when you are a small child, it is important that as practitioners, we recognize that a child is angry or frustrated or furious about something. We need to um, verbalize it for children because the two-year-olds often have the feeling but are not able to uh, express it vocally because it's only when you know what it feels like 
can you actually tame the beast? Mm. Right. Um, and you can uh, come to understand um, your own feelings. And currently, there's a huge amount of discussion about self-regulation for under fives. And it's very wrongly um, associated with the child's capacity to sit still or to dress and go to the loo and uh, listen to the teacher, when in fact self-regulation is an emotional capacity to understand your feelings and harness them or manage the feelings in a way that is socially acceptable. Mm. And um, what is socially access acceptable is kind of will depend on the community in which which you live. But I, I think that um, the, what the Montessori teacher tries to do is to really try to get to know the child for who they are and help them to understand themselves mm -hmm. so that they can become the wise adults that we hope they will grow into. The, the, the wisdom is embodied in the child's initial physical autonomy, being able to do things for themselves, but that physical autonomy should convert or should grow into cognitive and emotional autonomy. So effectively, these um, young children who have had benefit of Montessori education should be able to recognize some of these uncaring attitudes of others and should be able to challenge them, but should be able to challenge them in a way that is not aggressive, that uses wisdom and care to help the other person identify perhaps new ways how they could deal with their own emotions and with their own uh, aggressions or with their own frustrations. Um, um, so altogether, we need to look at the whole child, but we always need to start with the child's emotions. Mm -hmm. How does the child feel? Because unless the child feels positive about themselves, they are not really able to emerge as a stronger, strong individual. Mm -hmm. um, and they are not able to use the tools of their culture to be caring for others. They are not capable in extremes of the empathy that being part of community, community requires. And um, whilst, whilst Adelaide was talking, I was reflecting on my own childhood, um, having been brought up in Eastern Europe where everybody had to work. So mothers had to go to work and children were current cared for in creches and nurseries. And uh, when I came to England at 18, I had a very strong sense of self. And I did not, I only experienced this kind of anti-feminist attitudes or attitudes against women or just putting me at a disadvantage when I came to England. Mm. And I very quickly recognized that this is not a position that I want to be in. And for me, as a, I don't know, 18-year-old in 1968, it was really having uh, economic um, independence of my partner so that I could always look after the children and earn the money. So for me, I didn't have that tension between being a mother. I knew I felt very strongly that's what I wanted. But I also understood that I will have to take some responsibility for the children's upbringing. So it is possible to educate towards more acceptance uh, of our roles that we contribute to lives together. Mm -hmm. And it has also made me think about the young men of my son's generation who actually want to invest time in being fathers to their children not to be the absent figures who earn money. So we have made progress uh, in some of the circles that I associate with, where the bringing up of children becomes a shared role, not only by dividing, you provide the money and I provide the care. And by children experiencing this richness of care, they will also benefit because it gives them a sense of well-being. And we often associate childbirth or parenting this economic impact on the couple. We seldom talk about the joy 
that it brings mm. you, the well-being, the sense of fulfillment, to be able to give of yourself to others. Mm. And to me, that is at the heart of the care that um, both Sid and Adelaide talked about. Yeah, I mean, for me, um, talking about uh, you know emotions and care, it really goes back to um, the history of knowledge and history of science in in the West, um, particularly when you go back to Aristotle and um, you know you track the history of science, you find that um, the dichotomy of rationality and emotions, you know, it, it's where it all starts, where uh, the man was con considered as complete and rational being, while the woman was considered incomplete, um, hysterical, you know, mm, hysteria, yeah. um, and um, incomplete to be completed by the man. Mm. Um, so there is this undervalue of emotions as valid form of knowledge, mm. uh, care as valid form of knowledge. Mm. And, and quite often you see that um, you know, competition is seen as a natural um, human nature. While you know, you can also argue that care is a natural uh, human trait. You know, humans naturally are um, built to care for one another. And you see that in time of crisis, there is always somebody that the caring side comes forward, and we are surprised by it. And in fact, it's integral to us being human. Yeah. I think, and I think parenting is a very easy way to look at that, um, as is teaching, but it's also, I think now more than ever, um, community-based has been, it's been a really, um, interesting time to, to see the ways that people have stretched their capacity for care. You know, I've, I've developed a really enriching relationship with my next door neighbors who I've lived next to for four years and, you know, we'd give each other mail and stuff, but it's it's become a, a whole you know sharing of food and sharing of space and and a real that kind of what had seemed to me as a millennial who lives a lot of my life on the internet you know as do the most people in our generation uh, had seemed sort of an outdated mode of of finding community as the person you live next door to and now it's it's been more present than ever for me and I think that that caring nature and and openly valuing that as a form of strength is essential to our community moving forward. Adelaide, you're, um, you have a production that your um, theater company is working on now. Um, could you, would you like to tell us about? I would love to. Um, so we do. It's been uh, unfortunately postponed for, you know, about a year. Um, but the show is called Penny. And it is a show about my mother, Penelope, who... Um, who I love very much and who is a, a huge source of, source of inspiration for me and uh, luckily for the the rest of the members of my theater company. So um, Maud, as a theater company, we are uh, a fundamentally feminist and queer company. My theater partner, Brendan McDonald, and I started it in 2018 and with, with the express intention of disrupting the conventional forms through which we tell stories and telling stories that feel underrepresented or undertold in ways that subvert theatrical tradition. Um, so this is our first fully devised show as a company and uh, we are creating it with uh, another company member named Eva Scott. Um, and it essentially takes, uh, approaches telling my mother's life story partially through the lens of Penelope from the Odyssey, but who who is a character that emerges in the show, um, but with a particular look at my mother as a creator. Uh, so my mother grew up um, in a sort of restrictive religious community in a Seventh-day Adventist community in New England, uh, and then sort of expanded out of that, um, became her, her own you know, strong feminist uh, in the 80s. And well, really was before that, and has always wanted to be a writer. But going back to what we were talking about with this, I, this sort of juxtaposition of motherhood and sacrifice, my mother uh, moved more into um, the environmental movement and worked as a fundraiser there for, for years while raising her children, and now is at this point of having two children who are grown. And so this show is, is looking at this next stage of her life and my mother's identity as a writer. And... Uh, by using Penelope from the Odyssey, we examine what a feminist approach to creativity is and creativity and motherhood and um, 
and how how we value women as as artists and creators. And of course, Penelope from the Odyssey lends us this, you know, very Western but very um, classical representation of of a woman who who ingenuous ingenuously used her um, her craft of weaving to deter a whole slew of men to to great political significance at the time for the kingdom of Ithaca while she was waiting for Odysseus to come back from the Trojan War. Um, but it was this this tapestry that she would weave and and said that when she was finishing it, she would then find a husband and every night she would unweave it. And we look at that model of the weaving and unweaving and this this piece of art that was also a tool for Penelope as as an example of, of a feminist approach to creativity that is in a constant state of becoming. Mm-hmm rather than striving for this sense of completion or finality um, and and how we can conceive of telling the story of someone like my mother uh, and giving it the kind of significance and care of, of an epic hero, but uh, simultaneously dismantling the parts of that conception that are, are linked to a patriarchal perception of strength and heroism. You know, my mom's not battled any any cyclops or anything, but she's certainly tackled beasts of her own. Um, and, and yeah, so, so it looks at that and it also, our, our theater is very, um, sort of live and interactive and really capitalizes on the live shared nature of theater. That's why we're not going to do it for another year, but, um, (laughs) part of the show is, is my mom's, um, recordings. So she recorded her life story, uh, to me before she sort of knew exactly what it was for. Of course, we told her afterwards. But um, so we use these recordings of how she's told me the experiences of her life as a way to also look at oral tradition and the ways that women's stories are handed down through the ages. And um, and yeah, it's it's once it gets to see the light of day, I hope I hope it'll resonate with with more people. We've done a lot of um, sort of work in progress showings of it. And and what has been really rewarding about the show itself is is how uh, how much surprisingly I would I guess um, a feminist approach to storytelling really resonates, particularly when it's about motherhood and about personal relationship to women and heritage and tradition and um, yeah, an inheritance as well. I think as as a woman or as a person who cares about women, which is I would hope most everyone. And in, in that there's such a strong connection with young children. Because they absolutely love to hear stories mm. about themselves, about their members of the family. Um, uh, when I first started to look after our granddaughter, I used to read her a book. Now, when I'm putting her to bed, she says, tell me a story from your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we often, um, she now has got several scenarios that she likes me to repeat. Oh. And uh, But yesterday she asked for a new story. So, um, and I was a very poor storyteller for our daughter. The only story I could tell her was the story of evolution, <laughs> which I <laughs> uh, used to tell her passionately because that's what I learned at that time uh, soon after I became a Montessori teacher. And so um, in the time now that I'm a grandparent, I have got the time to think of other stories yeah. that are more meaningful. So I'm very thankful to be a grandmother and to be able to share my care with, with the next generation. Yeah. And, and story Barbara, you mentioned is... that your, um, your granddaughter is quite feminine in the traditional sense in her tastes and choices that she makes. And um, I was curious to ask Adelaide, is there a role or place for femininity in the feminist theater. Oh my gosh, yeah. Well, I'm I'm hoping that our next show is going to involve something to do with drag, um, which is a great example of one of the ways I appreciate femininity most in a theatrical setting, to be honest. Um, absolutely. I mean, I think storytelling and the ways in which we tell stories gives you the opportunity to try on and explore all different kinds of performance and gender being a performative thing is part of that. Um, our, yeah, our aesthetic for this show is very, um, sort of folk art and craft based because of course we're kind of looking at underappreciated aspects of femininity. So, so, you know, more domestic, uh, quilting and, and that kind of 
thing that that's traditionally female but maybe not considered feminine in the kind of sparkly princess way mm. um but absolutely i think there's there's space for for everything and anything in feminist theater and and uh, yeah it, it's it's all about coming up with ways of of rethinking the old models and building new ones of how we share values as a society because i think that's what's that's what um storytelling is about it's yeah. about mm. a, a shared communal negotiation of 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 values and morality mm. um and for me i i heavily value femininity mm. it's been a really important part of my life as has masculinity yeah. and the option for both and everything in between um it has been I've been very lucky to have those avenues afforded to me throughout my life. You know, I had very short hair as a kid. I also had really long hair as a kid and, you know, was and liked playing with my own gender presentation and, and was lucky enough to do so relatively undeterred by the world that I grew up in. Mm. Um, and demonstrating that flexibility and the joy of that kind of dynamic relationship to gender and presentation is part of what I love about theater and part of what Maud as a company is really interested in and in sharing and perpetuating and celebrating in the work that we make. Mm -hmm. I like how uh, Jacob Tobias, um, he, he talks about his vision for the world and, and it's not a gray, black and white sort of world, but it's a world that's very um, explorative and experiment, you know, experimentation sort of based, and he calls it gender chill, yeah. which I really love. <laughs> exactly. He said, I'm just a gender chill. <laughs> yeah, but it's also, you know, one of one of my greatest joys growing up as a as a sort of young th actor as as a hobby, and then something I took more and more seriously was the ways in which it enabled me to practice extreme empathy through my imagination. Um, the first character I ever played in a show, I'm remembering this up, but his, it was this, this little summer camp melodrama and I was eight and I played a character called Scabby Sneed, who was the villain who had this big handlebar mustache that he twirled and, and, you know, was the, was the real evil, no, no good, you know, man in the, in the show. And that as an eight year old girl, I was like, this is awesome. I, I get to explore what it's like to be this person that is so far from me. And I think that's a really, you know, gender and identity and experience wise, it's a really fun way to, to play with, with what it's like to be another person. And then that has its ramifications as members of society as well. So if you, if you are on stage or see someone on stage disrupting or their what, what might be a conventional gender presentation for them or conventional family structure um, or, or anything. If you see that in a story and it is, it doesn't even have to be the, what the story is about, but, but that representation um, is, has, has, it ricochets throughout everything else, I think. It sounds like your theater is operating on many levels. So it's operating on the storytelling level, on the human relationships and, and how they work level on the values underlying those as they have been in, in the case of your mum. Mm. And then also on a kind of metaphysical level of presenting a never ending story of, of uh, evolving um, motion towards liberation. Yeah. So it's kind of happening on, um, which is wonderful about the arts is they can exist on many levels. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, oh no! I, well, it's also I think I think for me as an artist, and um, and this is kind of I, I think it, this is where feminism can get so abstracted that maybe it's it's just about breaking down structures now. <laughs> but bear with me. Uh, I think theater in particular, as an art form, has been very much stuck in a in a certain sect of traditional mentality for a while, particularly when it comes to who is who theater is for, um, and that's less of an. I mean, I don't even. It's a different kind of issue in the United Kingdom than from the United States, but particularly where I come from, theater is very much still an art form seen to be reserved for the elites and, and all of the barriers to accessibility that come with that. And uh, I'm very interested in our artwork being about making this kind of live communal storytelling accessible. Um, 
to to people regardless of socioeconomic background, physical ability, um, you know, race, sexuality, gender, nationality, what have you. Obviously, there's certain you know we exist we work in English and and there's other financial barriers to making something completely universally accessible. But I think theater in the 21st century, especially, um, needs to really rethink what it is doing and who it is for mm. and how it exists within communities. And that's where it it is very lined up with my my sort of activist feelings as a feminist, as a you know, environmentalist, as a this, that, the other thing, mm-hmm. all of the things I am. But um yeah, I, I we aim to work on a lot of different levels and try and practice what we it's, it's it's really interesting. I was trained in Indian Carnatic music and um coming to the West I just realized that how everything uh, the whole world is actually judged and gauged on the basis of Western musical system and Western mm-hmm. sort of ideas of what is good music and good art, you know. So um, there's a sort of internalized devaluing of my um, um, indigenous, you know, sort of non-Western um, roots, um, yeah. which I think is, you know, really goes with what you're trying to say about elevating and valuing other than Western ways of, you know, doing art and music and so forth. Yeah, and there's a certain point at which it, in theater there are several practitioners throughout time who've kind of come to Western theater and and declared it dead and then had a new sort of approach to to wake audiences back up or to to bring life and blood back into theater again. And and I think we're, for me anyway, it feels like we're about that one of those periods where it needs to be drastically reconsidered and dismantled. And in dismantling a, a structure that is no longer functioning, that is in and of itself a feminist act. And I think that's intrinsically linked to our identity as a feminist theater. Thinking about music as a form of expression, there have been tendencies by musicians, white musicians, to borrow things from mm. other cultures um, to enhance their own, but never to really embrace it in its fullness and make it more accessible to those communities. So I think there's quite a lot of work to be done on that front, don't you think? Absolutely. And I think it's also, it, it can give the illusion of of growth and expansion. Yeah. Um when it actually is just uh, uh, stealing, yeah, yeah, stealing, yeah. I was like, "What's the fancy?" No, that's the that's the clear word. For it. it's just appropriation, stealing. appropriation, yeah, yeah. But polite, but polite which term. is just stealing. I mean, yeah. it's col- it's cultural colonialism, yeah, right? Exactly. Um, so, um, Barbara, could you comment on how theatrics and and it's no coincidence that children's play and a play on the stage um, have a lot in common. Um, how do how does role playing and the other sorts of creative play that children are engaged in? How does that fit with Montessori's approach and the general consensus about what's helpful for young children? So through a lot of misunderstanding of Montessori's writing, and because Montessori herself didn't directly address the whole idea of role play, it has not been. It has been frowned upon, certainly in my own training, and I have worked actively um, through the 35 years to demonstrate the importance of role play for all young children. And it came home to me uh, when Adelaide was talking about her play, how in fact um, role play gives children the opportunities to create different personas. And I see that very much in my uh, granddaughters when she is in her full flow princess dress she's testing out what it is like to be like that Uh, but what is interesting in from children's point of view is that she can stay in that princess dress and then become an incredible tomboy Mm -hmm. and come to ride her bicycle or jump on her trampoline or show me how far she can leap because she's an incredibly physical uh, person so I come back again to this idea that as um Montessori practitioners, we really need to understand the need of the child to be many different persons, to take on many different roles, uh, which represent the richness of life. Mm. And it is only through those explorations um, that they will be able to find themselves. And very recently, I was thinking how limited 
the understanding of some of our practitioners is because they get to know the children through the use of the materials, but they don't know the children through their dreams and through their aspirations and through their experiences. And that's what I would really like uh, for the 21st century Montessorians to embrace, that we need to get to know the whole child not just parts of the child that we have been formally initially trained to get to know. Which I find really interesting because um, quite often the focus in early childhood uh, is on the cognitive development, you know, which is again connected to what has been valued historically, uh, you know, as rationality is more important. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that totally connects to that history of... Yeah. Uh, value and devaluing. Yeah. And I'm sure Montessori was fascinated in the way how children thought and how they learned because there wasn't much information. Mm. But we have learned so much more about children dur during the 20th century. So as a community, we need to really embrace again the whole child and follow the whole child. And um, it has been really interestingly reflected in the feedback we get from practitioners after lockdown that through play outdoors they are getting to know the children in a very different way to how they knew them when they worked with them in the classroom and so there's a positive hope that we will take something from it to enrich children's lives so that's a, um, uh, a, a good way to seg segue into what will it look like when this is all succeeded so what will society be like when it's not sexist, patriarchal anymore? Um, how, how will it feel different to everyone? I mean, hopefully more liberating, more exciting, more stimulating um, for everyone, more rewarding. Um, what do you see from each of your perspectives in that regard? What, what are we looking towards? What, is it, what does the future look like? I personally don't believe there is an endpoint. It's in the becoming, is what you said. Um, mm. It's in the process. Uh, it's in the continual responsiveness that we have towards the community, uh, rather than, uh, oh, here's a static model that we need to get to, uh, because um, what what inclusion means and what equality means is very means very different things to different uh, societies and very different things to different people. So it re really has to be that localized um, um, response to what is needed in this community rather than saying, okay, we've arrived. Yeah, I, I agree that, I mean, yeah, it's a constant state of becoming, isn't it? And and negotiating and renegotiating, and that's that's why we do you know, continue to interrogate these things as we go. But I do think in an optimistic view of the future, I've got a lot of dystopian versions I could throw <laughs> to that, uh, you know, are stories I've seen or, you know, imagined myself. But um, I like to think about a, a space in which, especially from, from early childhood, um, it is kind of a blank canvas with a with a multitude of like of, of materials and 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 a space outside of that to find and source and create your own in terms of building our own identities as as individuals and so what i'm interested in moving towards is a greater acceptance and appreciation for individuality as it functions in an interconnected communal way and within that it's about acceptance of any and all aspects of individuality that don't take away from other people's ability to determine their own, you know, so, so barring anything that is actively destructive or, or negative towards others, I think that it's, it's about breaking down. Yeah. Having girls in princess dresses, having people in princess dresses, having princess dresses that look like armor and having them that look like giant, you know, grapes I don't know like it's it it's about freeing our minds from these kinds of ways of thinking that that actually get in the way of a lot they take so much time to work around or manipulate to to suit your needs or try and go covertly through you know work your way through these systems and and if if people were allowed to be themselves and encouraged to find and love and continually discover and be in a constant state of becoming more themselves. Mm -hmm. I think everyone would be happier. <laughs> yeah. 
I just want to add uh, one more thing from my side of, um, of I really, um, the kind of theories that I work with are, are called post-human sort of theories and basically uh, decentering the human, not erasing the human, but sort of deprivileging the human and seeing the human as entangled and connected to all these other uh, processes. So for, for me, another aspect, which you did mention b- mm. before about environmental justice, you know, yeah. um, uh, the decentering of the human is equally an important part of that we are not the most crowning creation, you know, sort of uh, yeah. <laughs> Christian sort of view uh, uh, that we are part of an entangled uh, uh, cosmos. And that goes back to what we were saying about care. You know, a care is is about not just caring for ourselves and for the other people around us, but it's about for the environment, well, for the entirety of of the global organism that is so interconnected. You see this with wildfires in California causing a red sun on the East Coast. It's in a matter of days. It's the world is 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 so much more um, intertwined than than we often allow it to to be in our conception because it's easier. And to some extent, this was Montessori's vision for the new person to be part of this um, cosmic uh, world or part of the whole cosmos where we understand our interconnectedness and interdependence um, on each other, on the environment, on the earth. um, And um, also, from my perspective as a as an educator of teachers, I hope that we will be able to instill capacity to reflect and really tune into the children as they are emerging as human beings and be able to not to put our agenda onto their shoulders, allow them to express their many different ways of being. And I think if we achieve that, we will continue to evolve and we will continue to explore. There will always be challenges, but we will be more open to facing them in an equitable way. Okay. That seems like a great place to leave it once again. So thank you very much to uh, Barbara and David and um, Sid and Adelaide. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.